welcome to the Open Source Underdogs podcast. I'm your host, Mike Schwartz, and this is episode 39 with Shannon Williams, co-founder and VP Sales of Rancher. Let's go for a minute into the land of hypothetical. If I could ask all 38 previous podcast guests a question, is monetizing support a good idea? I think there would have been virtual consensus that support doesn't scale. Except, Rancher is perfectly executing a business plan to do just that. I hope you enjoy this episode. Tweet your comments to at FOSS podcast, and we will asynchronously discuss in the Twittersphere. But for now, here we go with the interview. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Mike. It's uh, exciting to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Can you just fill us in a little bit about how Rancher got started and what was the mission? Yeah, you know, we've been going now since 2014. In a lot of ways, it feels like we started before that because my co-founder, Shen Leong, uh, Will Chan, and I, the, the three of us, started another company called Cloud.com back in 2008. And, you know, for all intents and purposes, we've been working together every day for 11 years now. And so that company was uh, was an early developer of open source infrastructure as a service software. We built a product called CloudStack the founding members of the OpenStack Foundation and, you know, had a, had a really fun run there for about three years before being acquired by Citrix and spending another three years at Citrix. And so in our work on CloudStack, we learned a lot about, as you can imagine, you know, managing infrastructure at scale, building out private clouds, helping a lot of large companies build public clouds. And, you know, at the time, everything we were focused on was what, how do we deliver virtual machines to developers quickly? from anywhere. But over the course of working on a lot of private clouds, we noticed that we had a lot of conversations with people trying to figure out how to blend their on-premise infrastructure with this growing amount of cloud infrastructure. And one of our early customers was GoDaddy, actually. They were looking at building private cloud and uh, a public cloud, I should say. And Darren Shepard, our fourth co-founder of Rancher, was the chief architect there. We got to know Darren really well. And we started talking you know, in 2014 about what could be done to bring together the on-premise infrastructure, the cloud infrastructure into something that, you know, overlaid it all. And it really allowed people to treat infrastructure like cattle, like like a disposable commodity. And Docker was just getting started that the concept of containers was emerging. and, And we thought there was a really cool opportunity to look at leveraging that to build out you know, management tooling, infrastructure services, and and kind of imagine the next generation of infrastructure management, which would be, you know, hopefully enable people to do computing anywhere with really consistent deployment experience, management experience, monitoring experience, all these types of things. And so Rancher was born and and for, you know, for almost five years now, we've been working on continuing that journey, how to, you know, build open source products that are available to anyone and really allow them to run workloads anywhere. So that's really where we came from. So this market, it's really diverse. There's a lot of tools and tooling in this area. I'm wondering, what's the exact value proposition for Rancher's service? So Rancher's open source software. We have a number of open source projects, but our, our most famous is called Rancher. And it is a it really sits at the management plane around Kubernetes. So organizations use Rancher because they are deploying and managing more and more Kubernetes clusters. Rancher provides distros of Kubernetes. We have 
one called RKE, which is which is a pretty typical upstream distro. It's really good for deployment automation. And then we have a one that's optimized for the edge or other low resource utilization resource called K3S. So we provide distros of Kubernetes to people that need to run Kubernetes, but Rancher itself actually sits above those distros. It's the management plane. And what's cool about it is it's it's really distro agnostic. It actually manages any Kubernetes. And by managing, what, what that means is an organization implements Rancher so that they can deploy and control and then gain grant access to dozens or hundreds of Kubernetes clusters, some running in the cloud, some running as hosted services like GKE and EKS, some running on-premise, maybe on the edge. And by bringing all those clusters together, what Rancher allows them to do is dictate policy, um, control access, monitor availability, you know, manage deployment of applications, manage catalogs, attach all these sort of third-party type or additional open-source services like Prometheus for monitoring or Fluent D for logging or Istio for service mesh. And so Rancher sits at that nexus of how do I manage Kubernetes everywhere um, according to my organization's policies. And by doing that, it enables them to then you know, really deliver this service reliably. So for our organizations, they think of Rancher as their Kubernetes platform. It's the Kubernetes as a service. It's how they deploy apps and, and run anywhere. So the Rancher GitHub repository has 14,000 forks, which is really a lot. But there's only around 60-something developers, which I could see as probably primarily being the people in your organization. Can you talk about the relationship between the open source project and the activity there and the SaaS service? Well, just to be clear, we don't offer a SaaS service. Rancher is open source software only. We only provide open source software that people use. What we sell is support for those open source projects. So our customers, you know, about on any given day, there's about 30,000 teams around the world running Rancher. And so those teams, you know, they may be a small group that's deploying it for one application. They may be somebody doing a dev lab or a test lab. But of those, about 1%, about 300 are our enterprise customers. These are companies that deploy Rancher and whatever they're running on it, it's critical to their business. And so they contract with us to provide enterprise-grade support for Rancher, RKE, K3S, and really their whole Kubernetes stack um, up and down. And by providing that enterprise-grade support, they, you know, what they get from us is you know, the confidence to run really important workloads on the open source Rancher. But what they like is that we don't have your classic open core only model. We, we don't sell a version that's different to them. They just pay an annual support subscription and they use it. And, you know, in a year later, if they are no longer using it, they don't pay an annual support subscription. They could keep using the software, but they would be using it again without support. So our model is um, it's really geared around helping organizations that need support get the best possible support in the world for Rancher and Kubernetes and Prometheus and Istio and all the pieces of technology that we deliver to them. Has open sourcing the code really made a meaningful contribution to the company? Oh, it's at the root of our success. So by open sourcing the code, we enabled, you know, a startup with relatively, you know, with no name recognition, obviously, to come into, in a lot of ways, what's a very crowded market, right? I mean, you think about the companies that are, you know, dealing with application management platform as a service, right? It's, you know, when we started, you could imagine Docker, Mesosphere, Red Hat, 
um, pivotal. Like these companies were already out there, uh, you know, Docker in their sense with having released the Docker project, but building orchestration and building different types of management tools. And, you know, with enormously more funding than us, much, much, much bigger brand recognition teams. And we had to find a route to market and to find a route to market with limited, you know, funds, we needed to let our product be our best piece of marketing. And so we took that approach then, and we we'd believed in this for a long time. Our last company, we followed a very similar approach, but we made Rancher fully open source and free because we felt that it was the best way to get adoption, to plant seeds in, in organizations that would need this technology. And so by putting it out there, we really bet on two things. We bet that people would like it and that they would want to use it. But we also bet that this technology was crucial and that they would that at least a big a good chunk of people who use it would find value in getting support for it and find value in having SLAs that they could rely on for that application. And we've been thrilled. I mean, our company is now almost 200 people. We're we're more than more than doubling this year in terms of revenue. It's really worked out really well. People really do love Rancher. And it's the, it's the thing that makes me really confident with the model is you know you have to believe in your engineers. You have to believe that products can be great. We also spend an enormous amount of investment and time working with our open source community. You know, we're on, we have a huge Slack community of thousands of users who come in with suggestions and ideas on how to make the product better. We get thousands of issues and feature requests and bugs filed by the community. I always think we have more of a user community than a contributor community, but I love it because they, um, you know, they come to us with real problems that need to be solved and they identify them and often their use cases sometimes are, are, you know, pushing the boundaries that we wouldn't, we may not see out of a Fortune 500 company that's using Rancher. And so it all sort of pushes forward with the, hopefully creating a great product for everyone. So just to sort of dive, I guess, a little deeper on that, if you made the software commercial tomorrow, do you think the enterprise, the 300 or so enterprise customers who are using the software, do they really care about it being open source? or is it really just a non sequitur? They just want the best software. So if you made a commercial tomorrow, do you think that that would be bad from where you are today? Yeah, I do. I would say it's, you know, when I talk to organizations about our business model, they get really excited because there isn't one of them which hasn't been in a position of really limited leverage against their current vendors. Everybody has been staring at just massive renewal orders that I mean, we closed just this quarter, just I mean, today's the, it's the end of, uh, end of our, uh, our third quarter. And we, we closed three deals with organizations that are spending a lot with us, you know, half a million a year in, in recurring revenue, for example, to support environments. And their frustration in some cases was platforms that they had built, PaaS type platforms where the cost had grown exponentially and they just had no ability. Even though these were all based on open source, they weren't themselves open source. And so being based on something doesn't give you a lot. I mean, almost everything's based on something open source at this point. What people really like is they like an open source product because they always have the option to leave it there, let it run, support it themselves, hire some engineers and figure it out. But in the end, if you're running a proprietary tool and, and you don't pay, you get you have to yank it out of production. And that is impossible for most companies. I think our business model, yes, some people would still buy it, Rancher, and, and be fine with it. But I think a lot of the smartest CIOs I talk to are 
really excited to see a company like us that embraces open source for commercial purposes, provides really good support, and is committed to building open source products. So for us, it's allowed us to grow way faster than any other approach I can, I've been able to come up with. It seems like Rancher made an epic pivot towards Kubernetes at some, some point, I guess, re- fairly recently. What did you learn from that process? Well, the hardest part about getting into any market is making bets and then figuring out where they come down. So when we released the, we first started working on this, Rancher started about the same time as Kubernetes. Right around 2014, Kubernetes was starting, I think, same time we started our company. And at the time, we really thought Docker and their swarm and stuff were probably more likely to win out. Just they had so much momentum. But it only took us about a year to realize that Kubernetes was actually a really well-built piece of code. And so when we first started working, we were kind of thinking we would be managing swarm clusters and, and Mesos clusters, maybe. But then we, we decided to, even before we were launched our 1.0, we decided to support Kubernetes because it was uh, it was just a really good piece of software. And and so we released the 1.0, our first product to the market in 2016, uh, Rancher 1.0. And, and at the time, I if I was talking to you then, I would have said something like, you know, it's seems like different companies are choosing different orchestration approaches to containers because they need different things from them, right? Some people want to scale really big, like Twitter. And so they're using Mesos and other people, you know, are really focused on the developer experience and they're choosing Swarm. And it wasn't really clear yet that their one standard was going to emerge. But what we started to see was we started to see some stability issues with some of the other orchestrators that we saw as a manager. Just it was like, wow, these things aren't as stable as I would have expected them to be. And so and what we found is we just found Kubernetes to be really reliable. And so as we imagined our business and trying to support these technologies and helping companies implement them, we felt like it was safe to bet on something reliable. And that did require a pivot that moved away from messaging and product development had gone into supporting. We built our own thing. We had form, we had Mesos. We weren't really sure what orchestration was going to take off. But um, as we got more comfortable with Kubernetes, you know, and luckily we, we started working on it early, it made it really easy for us to honestly commit to something we liked. And so by that point, you know, by 2017, we were all in on Kubernetes building on that. And since we already had a lot of people using it in our 1.0 product, we also had a really nice base install that we didn't just lose. So a lot of times you have a pivot and it means almost starting from scratch, but we actually didn't really lose hardly anyone because it was very much in line with the direction that most of our customers wanted to go as well. Even if they maybe chose a different orchestrator, they also saw the market going this way. So they were really really appreciative that we gave them a path to get to Kubernetes off of maybe something else they had chosen when the market was still a lot less clear. And so, you know, we found that that wasn't nearly as big a problem. Now, what what is hard in pivoting, especially, you know, one of the things we built was our own orchestrator called Cattle. And the hardest, one of the hardest things was actually convincing our own engineers that the Kubernetes was, was actually superior to what they had, we had developed ourselves. And that's, that's hard. That's a hard thing to do because no matter what, right? If you built something, you always love it. And and at the same time, you know, in an early market like we were in, lots of people loved the thing we'd built. We had a lot of people telling, hey, we really like this cattle. It's it's really good. And you should just keep improving that. But um as an entrepreneur, as somebody trying to build a business, you have to, you know, you have to be you have to be really, really honest with yourself and you have to really look at all the signals, not just the ones that maybe are giving you the positives you want to see. And, you know, all the signals told told Sheng and I and Will and Darren that we needed to really 
focus our business on solving the problem that we thought most organizations were going to have. And that was how to take Kubernetes to scale, how to bring together a really complex ecosystem around it, how to build a platform that would work. And that meant really talking, hey, having long conversations with some of our engineers, convincing them if they weren't excited about this, that maybe there are other things they could work on in our team and finding the team focused on doing this. But it worked out great, but it was it was not trivial. I, I do appreciate it. We have a small team. I can only imagine when you see big companies today trying to pivot to Kubernetes, you've got years and years of customer install base and how difficult that might be for them. Right. And it takes a lot of leadership. So most sizable organizations are using containers today. So if you can sell to anyone, it becomes sort of challenging. So who do you sell to? So I'm wondering, do you segment the market at all? You know, one of the nice things about open source is it has allowed us to, you know, give you an idea. Most, I would say of the 300 enterprise customers, like every quarter now we're, we're, we're closing about 50 new customers. So when we close about 50 new, you know, every quarter when we're closing and we look at what the source of those are, I would say 30 of the 50 came from open source rancher users, right? They started with open source. They used it at a business unit level or line of business level, and it became important to them and they needed support. And those deals are, they're not very competitive, right? They've already kind of looked at rancher. They have a relatively short sales cycle. They've done the proof of concept, right? We don't have to go in and prove that rancher is the right solution for them. And so what we found is that we don't really need to segment that. The, the, the product pricing was probably the most important thing to segment it. We we did find that with such a huge install base, one of the mistakes we couldn't do is we couldn't support everyone for free, you know, or for a low, small amount of money. We needed to, you know, we really needed to kind of keep a relatively medium-sized bar that that you know ensured that people who needed support had to you know had to make an investment to get it. Right. So you know it would have been like for example we could have gone with a a lot of SaaS models, you know, $10 a month or something like that. But the reality is infrastructure and containers, Kubernetes, these are relatively complex things. The support is quite real. We provide a lot of advice, a lot of architectural help with these organizations doing it. And so there was a real risk that we would price the product so low and that we would then be trying to do this for lots of companies with very different levels of, of technical skills. And so I'd say the closest thing we came to segmenting the market was providing a lot of free open source support for people who were trying to figure it out themselves, but then charging a reasonably significant fee to come in and get support you know so our customers had to invest you know tens of thousands of dollars on an annual basis to get support with us and by doing that it it allowed us to work with companies that that really valued this right we're investing their time and their money into making it successful and so that was really the best qualifier was it allowed us to to focus on teams that that really um, could help us grow the business at the same time and so We've seen some industries become really, you know, big with Rancher, but it's more just a sign of who uses containers, right? It's companies and, and certainly the internet and the technology industry, but you know, we have a lot of financial services companies, fintech companies, biotech companies, universities, research organizations. You know, we're seeing adoption in government and military use cases. I mean, it's it's really broad now. Retail edge is driving all sorts of interesting use cases in oil and gas, all sorts of interesting use cases in uh, manufacturing. So automotive, I mean, just lots of cool things as people start to imagine a, a model where Kubernetes becomes this like grand unifying theory for compute, where it runs everywhere, right? It runs in their single node base station. It runs out in the windmill farms. It runs in Chick-fil-A shops. It runs in factories. It runs on cruise ships. It runs in data centers. It runs in the cloud. 
it's a really exciting time to be working on the tech. I, I would definitely say that. So normally it's really hard to get pricing right. Did you have to pivot your pricing model a couple of times or how did your experience with like figuring out what are the right price points? Oh man, that is a good one. No, you know, I would say we learned a lot from our last company about this. We probably made a lot, every mistake you can make last time. This time it was a lot. I mean, we made we definitely had to pivot it a little bit because we weren't quite sure what the right element was to scale on. Was it, you know, the number of clusters or containers or nodes or CPUs or things like that? But we decided pretty early on that, you know, the size of the implementation was probably a good way to judge what the, how the cost should change from a small deployment to a large deployment, the number of hosts and servers, things like that. And um, I actually would say we were really, we learned a lot. We were fortunate. There were a lot of indicators from the market as people talked to us. I would say your first 10 to 20 customers give you a lot of feedback on pricing, whether you want it or not. And usually, I think most people price too low just by nature, right? We all want to just make it make it both amazing and cheap, right? It's like, who wouldn't, who wouldn't love this thing? It's the best and it's the cheapest. But you have to be really realistic about what it takes to fund a business and what it's going to take to build a profit and, and how, you know, what you can do with those engineers you can hire. And then you have to convince people of the value. And that can be tough. I mean, there, I remember I've walked away from a lot of deals in open source, right? Just said, I'm sorry. I totally appreciate that you, you know, you're telling me you could use the software for free. So you, you there's no, you couldn't possibly pay me more than $10,000 or $20,000. But if I did that, I wouldn't be able to build a business and I wouldn't be able to write open source software and I wouldn't be able to give you the level of support you demand from your other enterprise software vendors. And so I'm sorry, we can't do business with you. And sometimes they come back, sometimes they don't. But being willing to walk away from deals is pretty, I mean, for our business model, it's absolutely critical. You have to be able to do it. Otherwise, Again, the car I'm selling you is available for free, right? You can take the same car. I'm not the exact same features. You're not paying for a special version. It doesn't have a better, you know, horn, you know, better tires. It's the exact same car. What I'm offering you is the confidence of working with me on it and the world's best support for that technology. And so if you don't value those things, then we can't come to any business relationship between us. Have you used partners to help you deliver? to customers, especially globally? Or are there any other business partners that have been important for you to build the business? Yes, 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 yes. And many, you know, over and over again, yes. The two things that really, I mean, the critical partners for us have been really two big buckets. We have found that the other companies who are building critical technology for teams adopting containers, there's a company called Portworks that builds some really nice storage and the company Aqua that builds great security. There's Sysdig who does great monitoring. GitLab who does really cool tools for um, for CI and for uh, you know obviously Git deployment. All really commonly chosen by our customers by partnering with those companies, companies that that fit into the same solution stack. We have been able to do two things. We've been able to build a much more credible solution for our enterprise customers. And we've been able to align messaging and go to market together and take maybe a couple of organizations who are our size, right? Venture funded startups and take our stories and show them to larger organizations together. And, um, you know, we've done this through, we run monthly, we run online meetups where, where our partners come and present to our users about their technology and how they work with Rancher and how they work with Kubernetes. And that 
gives us a lot more credibility. It helps those companies succeed, which helps the market grow because the, the market is vibrant. And so we invest a lot in partnering. We've also partnered really closely with the cloud providers. So we work really closely with uh, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft in the US and you know large providers around the world um, to ensure that their implementations of Kubernetes work really well with Rancher. And that's been fundamentally critical, especially because what we see is we see a market where if you're in the cloud, you're probably going to use the cloud provider's Kubernetes. And, and so we want to make sure that we're not trying to convince you to use Rancher's Kubernetes on Google. Take Google's Kubernetes engine. It's great. Let us provide you with a, a common framework so that whether you're using Google's on Google and Amazon's in Amazon and on-premise and edge or different types, everything is consistent. Everything is managed the same way. Everything is deployed, monitored, upgraded consistently. And you have a platform that really is this Uber cloud we set out to build in the beginning anyways. So if a customer says that services aren't enough, they want on-site engineers, or they want sort of higher level design consulting, do you do that as expert services or do you work with delivery partners to do that? We tend to work with delivery partners. Um, you know, we work really closely with both big and small delivery partners who have built expertise in Rancher. We have a, a platinum partner program, which is made up of some amazing companies that have uh, have implemented Rancher for others multiple times and, and really have deep understanding, often not just of us, but of our ecosystem. You know, so companies like Round Tower jump to mind there, CloudOps, Redapt, Accenture, we work with quite a bit, a lot of the, the large multinational services companies we work with in different different regions around the world you know these companies boxboats another really good one these guys are um, they're just they're really staffed to provide ongoing services for organizations uh, in a way that we're not like we are great at coming in and giving you a ton of information about rancher and helping you architect your rancher deployment but you know a lot of times you know technology is only a chunk of the solution the solution needs to include some transformation of how you do things, how you do DevOps, how to train all your developers around microservices, how to you know start thinking of some of these new service meshes and how they might fit into solving business problems for your company. You know, we can point you in the right direction and help you with those things, but we're very laser focused on the Kubernetes platform, right? And and these companies are much better than we are at providing the transformational experience around there. So we we yeah, we very much partner and especially in those longer term things. What we have found is really critical is the actual investment of our own on customer success though. So I would say one of the things that's gotten a lot better as we've grown is we've invested more and more in what I think of as like the first 90 days when an organization becomes a rancher customer. I think this is really important for open source companies because you know if you're a SaaS provider, you know, somebody's using your product, you have a pretty good idea of what they're doing with it. But as an open source software company, especially one that supports that open source software, you know, organizations can have very different processes. They may have more or less mature implementations. They may or may not have built an HA deployment. And they're coming to you to provide support. You really need to make sure they understand best practices and that you've reviewed their deployments. You've helped them understand how we recommend doing things. So we invest a lot more now in customer success than we did in the early days to, um, you know, when a customer comes on board, really spend a lot of time going through their architecture, helping them uh, make improvements that will achieve their goals, whether it's stability or you know, you know, multi-cloud implementations, or maybe they're trying to do something that's, that has a lot of scale and, and they, there might be something we've learned already that can help them. So we, we do, I would say customer success has been a big learning for us. Has that 
investment in customer success also translated into increased revenues per customer year over year? So are they buying more or other products or other divisions? Well, it's still new enough that I wouldn't say it's if I know how correlated those two things are, but we certainly believe they are. We are investing in it because our bet is helping a customer be successful with even a departmental implementation or a, a single app deployment is going to pay dividends for both retention of that customer that that workload so that they're they're valid you know the, the a year later when they're deciding if they want to renew that support they bought last year they have a, a really good feeling that yeah that was a great investment and partnering with these guys has been useful but certainly that also works internally as they use it they seem to spread the word i mean we have seen over and over and over and over again the power of the success of a rancher deployment spreading within a company you know we just you know, rancher users love rancher right it's it's a user oriented product and so what's so cool about a product that has 30,000 open source users is it says something about how usable it is right it's, it's like you know it's like terraform you use it it's pretty straightforward you like it you're like oh cool this is this is easy i can get this and you can you tell your friend you should use terraform it would help you do something it's kind of the same with rancher it's like if all those users are using it, they're clearly getting some value from it. And so when somebody in your company says, hey, use this, you probably benefit from it. And there's no barrier, right? I don't have to start by going and getting a license to try it. I can just use it. It tends to spread the same way. It's just the word of mouth and the power of it kind of spreads. And so we found that making them successful and making sure those early champions are well-armed to explain why they chose Rancher and they've got a really good implementation. They don't get bitten by a bad config or, you know, maybe not knowing the best practices that it helps us in the long run for sure. I'm sure you've been hearing about open source strip mining from large cloud vendors, but what I'm wondering is, do you think it would be good or bad if some mega cloud company offered a Rancher based service? I think it would be great personally from our perspective the value of these mega cloud providers is, is always tied into a, a big ecosystem that they're trying to build around. And you know what we find is that organizations are more and more, they want to live in those ecosystems and leverage those ecosystems, but they know they're not going to live in just one of them. So they want lots of them. And the more that those ecosystems interact or work together or things that help them work together, the better off they are. In so many ways, I think the the strip mining analogy is a is a rough analogy because while it's true that some of these providers don't put a lot back and there's definitely been some ugly competition between open source and, and commercial, you know, for the most part I think the relationship has actually been pretty beneficial, mutually beneficial between the cloud providers and the open source software developers. It's often where it's really struggled and where you've seen it struggle is when organizations haven't had a great business plan or a route to market or they haven't been able to commercialize their own product. And then all of a sudden it gets embedded into something larger. And, and then the only monetization of it happens in the cloud. I think that's where we see most of the problems. And, and I think that's going to continue, right? I mean, I think that was happening before as well. That we'd been developing, you know, ideas develop but are never really taken to market fully or not pushed into the market aggressively. And organizations build upon those something new or something tangential or something that accelerates them. And that is what ends up being the big success. To me, that's business, right? That's something that's going to happen in any space, whether it's open source or not. And, and yes, in our world, people can take and build on it very easily. But that's what you, you, you know, you know what you're getting into when you start an open source software business. And if you don't, you really should research it a little bit more. I mean, this is, this is the thing, this is the knife that cuts in many ways from a business perspective. And 
I certainly would look at the world and I certainly wouldn't call foul if that happened to an, an open source project. From us, and like I'll give you a feel, in, in China, Ranch is incredibly popular. Um, we've just, you know, from early days, my co-founder Shen grew up in China. And so it's just uh, have someone who can speak Chinese and talks about it. And China, Rancher became really famous. And we've had multiple times where startups have have kind of emerged competing with us in the market, selling Rancher and sell, providing support around it. And our experience has been that that, as long as we continue to push forward the innovation and, you know, when organizations that really value what we do, they're going to want to work with us, right? They're going to benefit from working with us. And as long as we keep pushing it forward and building the product better, I think that market will, that will continue to be the case. But you have to know what you're getting into. I don't, I don't feel like there should be a huge shock if you build an open source product and someone forks it and does something cool with it. That, that's kind of the idea. Moving to a slightly higher level, do you have any thoughts about when entrepreneurs should use the open source development methodology for to develop a commercial product? I mean, for me, it's, I think it's about the product you're trying to build and, and what you think your route to market needs to be, right? If you, if you're entering a market that you think is, is pretty, pretty competitive and, and has a lot of different products and you know, you're going up against much more well-funded organizations than you, then I think open source is a really, really important one to consider and, and to look at because it allows you to get adoption in what would otherwise be a really hard market, right? If your only feedback is going to come from, you know, a handful of companies you can convince to POC you or pay for it early on, you're going to have a hard time building momentum and you're going to have a hard time having good conversations with users who either like or don't like what you're building. And so, you know, to me, I don't know, maybe I'm, I mean, I've been building nothing but open source for 11 years. So it's, it's kind of feels to me like everyone should just build open source. I don't, I don't find that it's ever slowed down our, monetization, it's always been a benefit. But I certainly would say that if you're building something that you, you know, you think is is transformational, that actually has a broad audience that will adopt it, open source should very much be what you're considering. And if you're building something that's probably a service and it's going to be hosted and you're going to I think open source can be an enabling capability, but I wouldn't worry too much about the open source side. I would just focus on building the SaaS platform product tool that you're building a cloud service because I think in those cases, open source is less important than it is in the than in like on-premise software or fundamental software. But you know, I think you've seen with Docker, you know, that these open sourcing and having an open source success is not by any means enough to guarantee a commercial business success. But it puts you in a position where you have a great chance to engage with users, listen to what they think is necessary, next steps, what they're excited about your platform for, your product for, and what they are willing to pay for, and build on that. Last question. Any advice for new entrepreneurs starting a business around an open source platform? I think I'd probably say, of the four of us who started Rancher and you know started Cloud.com and everything, I'm the non-engineer. And so you know my role in the early time of building a company, I was I always consider my role then to be how to connect with users, like how to connect to people even before you have a product. And so when we're in our first six months, our first year, I spend all day, every day, you know, thinking about who our potential users could be, you know, based on, you know, the direction we think we're heading and reaching out to people, introducing myself and introducing the idea we're building and getting feedback. And so I always think of of every company as 
you always have to be thinking about the next milestone of users. Like, gosh, how do we possibly get to 10 companies using our product, right? And the only way I can ever found it works to get to 10 is to find them by hand, you know, to think, I think this would make sense for somebody in that space. And so I really believe that if you as a founder can't explain your value proposition enough to get someone to sit down on the phone and talk to you about it and maybe watch a demo, especially when you can tell them, hi, I'm Shannon. I'm I'm one of the founders of this new startup called Rancher. We're trying to solve this problem. And I thought it might apply to you guys. I really love your feedback. We're not really ready to, I'm not trying to sell you anything. We just want your feedback on what we're doing. If someone won't talk to you with that pitch, you might be barking up the wrong tree with your idea. And so, you know, how, how what's that? That initial response, if you can just explain what you're trying to build to someone right away, and if you can't get a meeting, it's probably worth reflecting on what you're doing and maybe tweaking it and trying some different approaches, trying some different messages. Because you know, if you can't get a meeting, it's going to be really hard to get a sale. Right? It's going to be really hard to get a user. It's going to be really hard to convert them into a, you know, a paying customer. But if you explain to someone, you know, most people are, love to talk to entrepreneurs starting companies, especially if they can really clearly communicate what it is they're trying to solve. And and that validation early on goes enormously towards then calling that person back in three months and saying, hey, we've got the first beta ready. Would you like to take a look at it? And um, getting those first 10 is is hand-to-hand combat, right? Really the first 100 is hand-to-hand connecting to people, showing them the product, showing them the value, and getting them to use it. And every once in a while, you have these runaway crazy successes where everyone sees it and is like, oh my goodness, I can't believe, you know, how did we live before this existed? But most of the time, doesn't work like that. Most of the time you have to connect, talk, demo, listen to the feedback and go back and consider how far on or off your strategy you are. Well, I said it was my last question, but now you just raised another question and I can't resist. Previously, you mentioned that a lot of the leads for customers were from inbound from customers who used the software, liked it, and then called you to purchase a support subscription. But 50 deals a quarter, that's a lot of business. That's really pretty stellar. And I'm wondering, what's the right mix of inbound and outbound marketing sales to push for? Or how do you balance that? It's really key to, the first step, I guess, for all this is, right, find a real market, right? When you find a real market, things get a lot easier, right? Because, you know, you have to have something going on that's causing people to look for a solution. They have to have a problem. and so. To, to your question, the right, I mean, the ideal, if I had my druthers, I'd have 100% coming inbound. So everything coming inbound means that the market is actively looking for solutions. My brand is well enough known and people know that I'm the, you know, we're, we're the company they should at least talk to about this to get a, a demo. And, or if they, ha- you know, ideally it's open source, just download it, install it and try it and see what you think. I, from day one, uh, you know, believed in, in inbound as, as our goal. And so that meant that instead of spending a lot of our early dollars on advertising, for example, or a, a lot, I spent almost everything we did online communication to users, right? And, and that meant we wrote, oh my goodness, we wrote dozens and dozens of, of pieces of content explaining how to use containers and Kubernetes and Docker to help people find us, you know, because they would, they might not be looking for a rancher, but they were looking to solve a problem. And so we really tried to build lists of the lots of the problems they were trying to solve. We wrote, we hosted an online meetup every month that grew to have thousands and thousands of people register every month. It's crazy. Um, and we, we run them today. I just did one last week. And 
what we said was, hey, come. It'll be our smartest technical people. We will stay as long as you need. We'll demo whatever it is we say we're going to do. We won't just show you a bunch of slides. We'll actually get in this code. We'll teach you how to do it. And we'll stay until everybody's questions answered. And so these things would run two hours, three hours, but they they allowed people to cross hurdles, right? To learn how to build a CI/CD stack on Kubernetes, or how to do monitoring on it, or how to deal with logging, or how to you know use containers in the cloud, or whatever it was we were trying to solve that month. We really focused on it, but it was really that it was education, community content um, that you know coupled with early references that we built by hand in that hand-to-hand phase that got the word out and. By continuing to invest in that, we were able to, you know, kind of sow so many seeds of open source users that as they matured, they and liked what they used, they contacted us. So the right mix for me is 100% inbound from the open source community. What we did find was as we grew and we started to run into bigger organizations, they have entrenched vendors, right? They have, so all of a sudden we were in. You know, we might have won a line of business user and they, they said, hey, we love this rancher thing. We're going to use it for application A, B, and C. But 80% of the company was using something else they had maybe built themselves or maybe they, they bought something, some other product a couple of years ago to do PaaS or something. And so we needed to, as those organizations started to look and say, well, why aren't you using this? Why are you using rancher? We had to support them and show other people in the organization, well, actually, this isn't the same. It's different. And here's why it's different. And so what we did find was that there were more longer enterprise sales cycles that we needed good, high-quality salespeople to work with bigger companies. But the positive was we found that those companies actually really appreciated that it was open source. And the fact that you already had won over a group of people who really loved it internally meant that you kind of solved, in a lot of cases, the biggest problems as IT teams were facing, which was they were building stuff and no one was using it anyways because they were just going to the cloud and they were building something themselves. And so when we could tie together, you know, the IT organization, which is like doing everything they can to support forward-looking development while still being secure and still being cost-conscious and teams that have usage and, you know, feel like they've got found something cool, it was just like made it for a much easier sales motion than your traditional either selling top down or kind of getting some executive buy-in and then hoping people used your product once it was brought in. I don't know. Does that answer your question, Mike? I kind of feel like I rambled a bit there, but yeah, that's lots of great info. Shannon, thank you so much for joining us today and being so honest with your answers. Mike, it was my pleasure. Thanks for doing this. I love the idea of, of open source entrepreneurs just sharing and talking about what we do because it's i think it's a phenomenal business model and what we're enabling is a real transformation of the relationship between the developer of of really powerful software and the consumer of that software so it's something i have enormous passion for and best of luck with rancher and congratulations on all the success thank you so much mike you too have a great one and thanks to the rancher team for making this happen transcription and episode audio can be found on opensourceunderdogs.com Music from Broke for Free and Chris Zabriskie. Audio editing by Inez Satenji. Production assistance by Natalie Lau. Operational support from William Lau. Transcription by Marina Anchikovic. The Twitter handle is at FOSS Podcast. That's F-O-S-S Podcast. Rate us on iTunes if you like this episode. Next week, we have James Waters, SVP of Product at Pivotal. Until then, thanks for listening.